Hey there, listener. If you like what you hear on World Changing Women, you should join us at the Conscious Company Leaders Forum, where we bring together tons of stories like this live, in person, outside of Santa Cruz, California at 1440 Multiversity. Go to ConsciousCompanyLeadersForum.com for more information. I'm Megan French Dunbar, co-founder and CEO of Conscious Company Media, and welcome to World Changing Women. Each week, we interview some of the most badass female founders in the world to get their insights on how they've built game-changing companies that actually have a positive impact on the world. Our hope here is to inspire and help people of all backgrounds who feel like starting a business or chasing their dream is out of their reach to reconsider. We'll hear the good, the bad, and sometimes even the ugly of what it takes to start and build something incredible. And we hope that every episode will leave you inspired, hopeful, and with practical tips that will help you along your journey. Welcome to World Changing Women. You know, during our sort of graduation week, everybody was done with their finals and classmates were going out and golfing and going to the beach and doing all these things. And we were working harder than we had ever worked in our lives. (laughs) While she was in business school, Kirsten Toby started a revolution. In a fight against childhood obesity and with a goal to set students up for success, she sought to redefine school lunches. Kirsten, along with Kristen Richmond, co-founded Revolution Foods, which has since grown from an MBA project into a thriving business that employs over 1,500 people who serve over 3 million healthy meals to schools and communities every week. Throughout the country, but especially in low-income areas, access to high-quality, healthy food is limited. Student-inspired and chef-crafted, Revolution Foods provides affordable and nutritious breakfast, lunches, after-school snacks, and suppers that also taste good. Today, Kirsten shares her founding story, from running pilots to getting funding to starting a family, all fueled by a passion of building lifelong healthy eaters. I should start by saying that I am a co-founder alongside my um, my partner in crime and um, business partner, Kristen Richmond, who is sad not to be here with me today. So I'll try to reflect um, you know, the, the story of us working together on this. So we actually met... Um, well, we met in business school. We were in um, at the Hall School of Business at UC Berkeley. And um, we had both come from kind of backgrounds that included education. So I had been a teacher. She was, um, she both worked as an investment banker, but then also worked in, um, in charter school teacher recruitment and, and kind of was a part of the education reform movement um, in the early 2000s. And we came together in business school around, you know, just kind of this, this idea that there are there's a lot of um, just opportunity to improve the quality of what is provided to kids at school, and you know, first among the areas we saw so many amazing leaders creating great schools, you know, leading great schools, um, but we really didn't see anybody who was thinking a lot about what kids were eating at those schools. And we both, you know, neither of us came from a culinary background, but we both are real foodies and had, you know, have really seen. Um, in our own teaching backgrounds, you know, the impact that what kids are eating can have on how they do in school and how well they can concentrate and focus and, um, and all of those things. So, you know, we, we connected all of those dots of what we were, what we cared about, which is, you know, helping to set kids up for success and uh, through education. Um, but seeing that there was a major gap in the, um, in the marketplace in terms of providing healthy, fresh food 
food to students in schools, really particularly in schools that are um, where, where kids and the, and the student population are reliant on free meals at school. So low-income kids, kids who come from underserved um, communities and underserved populations, um, that those were the kids and the families that we saw who had the least access to high-quality, healthy food, both in school and oftentimes at home. Um, so it was really that, you know, that, that, you know, seeing that gap in the, um, in the marketplace and seeing that there's, you know, likely a business opportunity there because schools are a huge, you know, huge part of our, um, of our society and our economy. And, and, you know, we looked into what the kind of market, the, the market for school, you know, food served in schools is a $16 billion market. So, you know, as, um, we were sitting there in business school and and thinking about this as a um, you know a, an idea that could be addressed by a business solution, not just kind of a you know nonprofit or or kind of advocacy based solution. And for context, what year was this? This was well, we we started the company in two thousand six, so we were kind of writing the business plan starting in two thousand five, um, and you know we really we met in two thousand four, so early two thousands. Okay. So you're at Haas. You guys are kind of researching this. You've identified a hole in the market and also a a problem that you'd like to find a solution for. What I'm always curious is that moment at which you decided to actually take the leap. Were you guys dead set on doing this business while you were in business school? Or was that a decision that you guys made after you graduated? And how did you actually decide that you were going to go into business together? Yeah, it's a um, so interestingly, being in business school for us was a great time to, you know, spend time kind of protected time working on the business plan and really doing the work um, to identify how viable this business idea could be. Um, and so we spent a ton of time. We used our, a lot of our classes. We used a lot of our classmates who, you know, had to do class projects for different things to kind of research different parts of the, of the business plan, create, you know, marketing plans and do market research and, um, you know, build the financial model in our financial modeling class. And, um, we did, and then I think most importantly, we had two different classes. One was a social entrepreneurship class where our, you know, the, project was to write a business plan. Um, and then a new product design class where the, you know, the, the real focus was on user centered design. So through that class, we, um, you know, we worked together and that was kind of one of the first times that we started working together, um, on a project, but we worked together. And and as a part of that class, we went out and, you know, worked with the end users of our, you know, product idea. So we went out and spent a ton of time in schools, talking with kids, students, talking with um, teachers, talking with principals, um, and really sort of identifying what the, what the real kind of need was, both from a, a kid's perspective, which was, you know, we heard kids saying, I just want food that makes me feel respected as a person. You know, I don't want food that feels like it was an afterthought. And then we heard, you know, principals and food service directors in schools saying, I just don't have any options to choose from. Um, you know, I'm sort of stuck with what's provided to me by, you know, the district or by the one vendor that's in, you know, that's in this area. It's not like a competitive marketplace where, you know, there are five different options I'm choosing from and I'm choosing the worst one. <laughs> you know, it's just that there was, there really were, um, and that was one of the most um, compelling things that we heard was, you know, these decision makers were feeling like they had no options. And I think when you hear that, that's a, um, you know, the light bulb kind of goes off that this is a real business opportunity. Um, 
and and a real kind of white space to build into. So, so how did you go from there? I mean, it's, it's one thing to understand that there's an opportunity and that's a completely other thing to, to actually start taking the first steps into launching a business and, and getting that solution on the ground. What were some of the very first steps that you took? Yeah, well, I think the first, the, the most important couple of steps that we took, I would say there were three. One was we, um, you know, wrote a business plan that we could share with potential funders. Um, two was we started running a pilot program, which, you know, depending on what kind of business you're starting, this might be building a prototype. But for us, because we have a very programmatic <laughs> product, um, you know, we actually started running a pilot, which, you know, gave us real world experience in, um, in, how th- how the sort of logistics and the operations would need to work. Um, it also gave us something to bring potential funders and investors to see. So having a real tangible program in a real school lunchroom where real kids were eating real food, it was much different than having a PowerPoint presentation that said, here, this, this is a big idea that we have. So, um, you know, having that pilot program was probably the most important thing. And then the third was we, you know, at some point, and it was, you know, partway through our second year of business school, we kind of looked at each other and said, we're going to take this seriously and we're going to kind of make a go at this. It kind of went from being a school project to being a, and it was actually one of the principals that we interviewed um, who, you know, looked at us at the end of the interview when we'd been asking her about questions related to operations and logistics and pricing and, um, you know, all these things. And she was like, please don't let this just be a business school project. (laughs) Please make this a real thing because we need this. Um, And so it was, you know, that was kind of the third thing where, where we shifted from thinking of this as a project to actually, you know, saying we're not going to do what our business school classmates are doing. And they're going out and interviewing for, you know, all kinds of jobs. We're not going to interview. We're not going to look for other jobs. We're going to actually, you know, put our heads down for the next six months and try to raise funding for this and, you know, run the pilot program and see if we can make a go of it. Um, so it was really, a, um, you know, kind of that, that combination of three things. And then, you know, with the first of them being finding funding, um, you know, not an easy task, but it was, that was kind of the first thing that we put our, um, you know, put our efforts into after writing the business plan and, um, and running the pilot program you know, we, it's a very capital intensive business that we, that we, you know, wanted to start and that we have built here. And so we really, and we didn't have personal funding to put into, um, to put into this. So, you know, we were coming out of school with student debt, not, not with a lot of money in our pockets. And so, you know, uh, finding and, and, you know, spending time building the, um, building the sort of investment case for our first funders to come in was, was what, you know, ended up, pushing us over the, over the line to being able to launch, you know, the summer after we graduated. So you guys built the pilot program and started fundraising while you were still in school. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We spent most of our second year, um, running the pilot program. You know, we had, we had, we laughed because, you know, during our sort of graduation week, everybody was done with their finals and classmates were going out and golfing and going to the beach and doing all these things. And we were working harder than we had ever worked in our lives. (laughs) (laughs) Sign of a true entrepreneur right there. Um, so I'm curious, kind of as you set up in those initial days, is there anything now that when you look back at the beginning of the company that you wish that you had done differently as you set the company up? That's a great question. I mean, I think, I think we mostly made pretty good decisions based on where we were at the time. Um, you know, we did have to, we, 
started in a very small, um, you know, sort of subleased kitchen space. And then we had to move a year later and then we had to move another, uh, move again two years later because, you know, we were, um, we didn't want to invest in building out something too big too soon. Um, so we ended up, you know, spending a lot of time <laughs> looking for new space and, you know, to, uh, production facilities and, um, and building them out. But I, you know, it's, it's hard to say that we should have invested in a big, you know, state-of-the-art production facility in that first year. Um, I think we we probably spent a little too much of our time in that first year doing the the doing, the day-to-day. You know, we were in there at 3 a.m. every day, helping to get the food out the door, making sure all of the, you know, milk and fruit was counted properly and sometimes going along, you know, on the on the truck to the schools. Um, so we were spending a lot of time you know, just hands-on doing rather than, you know, thinking strategically about what was the next step. So we had to, so I think we ended up working incredibly long hours because basically our mornings were spent, you know, running the business and, and being very hands-on. And then our afternoons and evenings were spent doing the, you know, more strategic work and fundraising and thinking about next steps. Um, so, you know, I think in retrospect, it would have been nice to to be able to spend more of the time doing the strategic work in the beginning, but I think it's really hard to do that as an entrepreneur. You just, you do need to be very hands-on. Um, I mean, even today we're pretty hands-on, but, um, you know, you need to be very close to your customer and your product at all times. Mm-hmm. And, and one question I, I have is kind of how the model works. So, uh, you know, just hearing that you guys were in the kitchen counting milk and preparing food. And so just curious how I, I, maybe how it started and how it's evolved, but how does the actual model work for how you guys are getting healthy, fresh food to kids? Yeah. Well, so I'll tell you how it works today, which is kind of a you know more robust version of, of, um, of how it worked in the early days. It was not as formalized, but, um, you know, the, but the, the sort of essential model has not changed at all, really. You know, we, we basically, you know, it starts with our product development process. So we spend time and now, you know, our chef team spends time directly with kids, getting insights from them, hearing what they like, what they don't like, you know, and then bringing those back into the kitchen to create kind of, you know, prototype menu items, um, which we then take back out to the students to, to get feedback on. So basically, you know, everything we do or everything we develop is really starts with our end user, which is the students. Um, and, you know, making sure that something is loved by them from a taste standpoint before, um, before we go and commercialize it into a, a product to be delivered. Um, so that's kind of the beginning step. And, you know, in those early days, that was very informal. And it was us just going and sitting in lunchrooms and talking with kids. Now we have a, a more formalized process that involves more people. Um, but then we commercialize the the product. So we, um, you know, we, we figure out how to um, and this is where we've brought in, you know, people with much more expertise from the food industry than, um, than we had. Um, but we, you know, make those products at a large scale and we, um, work with schools in a few different ways, but, you know, schools, basically we become their provider of food and, and food products for, you know, a year or two years or three years. So we're, you know, we, we go into these long-term contracts with schools, um, the schools, order the meals from us on a, on a weekly basis and we deliver fresh food every day. And, you know, all of the food is designed both with those kind of, you know, kid 
tastes and insights um, in mind, but then we also have a wonderful team of you know dietitians and nutrition experts who partner with our chefs to make sure that everything that we're creating meets our um, both our ingredient quality standards, but also our um, nutrition standards, so that we're you know that everything we're serving is you know delicious but also healthy and balanced. Um, and then you know we also have have always had a very um, you know a very sort of you know tight. Uh, control over cost because in the world of providing healthy food for schools who are mostly reliant on the federal free meal reimbursements for payments, um, you know, we have to operate at an incredibly low cost basis. So, um, you know, it's one of the sort of greatest challenges and, um, but most rewarding things for our chef team when they are able to create, um, you know, food products that actually are affordable to schools who are serving, uh, um, you know, largely low-income student populations. So I remember, you know, I'm thinking back to like my middle school lunch, and I think my options were like chicken nuggets, pizza, and spaghetti. Mm-hmm. Um, how, when you guys were kind of getting off the ground and going to school districts, I presume, or, and trying to pitch them that kids would actually choose these healthy options over pizza or would be okay with kind of changing their entire diet, what was the pitch that you were giving these schools in order for them to try to actually make the decision to work with you? And then have you found that kids are okay eating healthy? Yeah. I mean, we, so one of the interesting things was that we, you know, and I, I mentioned the, um, the kids who said, you know, I just want food that respects me. Cause I think, you know, what, um, what we saw so much, you know, what we saw was happening so much was that, you know, food was the sort of served as the lowest common denominator to, um, to kids and often the lowest cost, right? So there were very few fresh fruits and vegetables being offered, you know, even if there was pizza, it was not really very tasty. There was, um, and so, you know, we went in, um, and, you know, took a very culinary approach and, um, and we also have a very kind of regionalized culinary approach. So, um, you know, we are, you know, there, there of course are sort of kid favorites on our menu, like spaghetti and meatballs. And, and we do offer a a pizza that's, you know, has real cheese and, um, and, you know, real high quality tomato sauce on it and a whole grain crust. Um, but we also look at kind of, you know, what are the regional favorites of the different, you know, ethnic cultures that we're, um, that we're working with. So, you know, we have gone into high, high, um, density of Asian American populations and developed rice bowls for uh, for breakfast in places where kids weren't used to eating bagels or cereal or you know oatmeal or muffins for breakfast. Um, we have gone into um, you know we, we expanded into New Orleans um, several years ago and developed a whole kind of you know lineup of of culinary. Um, creations with that reflect the New Orleans culture, like jambalaya, but it's made with brown rice and made with a you know a, a chicken sausage instead of a pork sausage. And so we kind of take some of those um, you know some of that regional culinary culture and we turn you know turn that into um, high quality food. One of the other things that we have um, that we have really recognized with kids is that you know, and, and this we heard from students in the very, very early days is that, you know, we, people like to say, oh, kids will always just choose the the junk food or they'll choose the unhealthy option. But you put a bowl of beautiful fresh fruit in front of a group of kids and they will gobble it up. I mean, they, if you can, if you give them high quality, I mean, especially fresh 
fruit, which, you know, eating fresh fruit and vegetables is one of the things that's been shown to have one of the, the you know, largest impacts on kids developing long-term healthy eating habits. Um, you know, even things as simple as that, just having high quality fresh fruit at, at every, you know, lunch and served at breakfast, um, it, it, it gives kids, you know, the option to, to eat something healthy that they actually really love. Um, so that, and then kind of developing the really culturally relevant foods that, that, you know, contain the high quality, more nutritious, um, kind of components. Um, those have been, you know, two of the ways that we've, um, that we've really tried to, you know, kind of both meet kids needs in terms of what they like to eat, but also, you know, introduce new things. And also sometimes it's introducing something new alongside something familiar. So it's, you know, giving kids a great high quality hot dog that has five ingredients in it, but serving it on a whole grain bun. And, you know, because they love the the form of the hot dog, they, you know, they eat the whole grain bun and, and over time they get accustomed to that being, you know, a flavor and a, and a texture that they start to, um, that they start to like. So hearing you just say that, you know, you're in New Orleans now, I, I was just piqued my interest around what type of traction have you guys had over the length of the business? Well, so we started out, um, you know, when I was saying in the early days, that first year, we were serving about 500 meals a day. Um, and that felt like a ton when we were going in and making that food every day. Um, and, but we, you know, over the last 12 years, we have expanded to now serving nearly 3 million meals a week. Um, and that's across 16 states, 35 major metro areas. Um, so we, you know, first expanded, well, we started here in Oakland, California. Um, then we expanded to Southern California. After that, we expanded into Houston, Texas, and um, New Jersey, New York area. Um, after that, we expanded into um, Denver and New Orleans, um, and then most, re- and then Washington, D.C. I almost forgot D.C., um, and then most recently, we we built a culinary center in New England, in Boston, um, serving the kind of greater New England area. So, um, and and in each of those areas, we've gotten just incredible traction from you know school leaders and um, families alike. That's incredible! Congratulations. Thanks. Um, so thinking about that growth and also hearing you at the very beginning talk about this need to fundraise, I'm curious around both how you ended up funding Revolution Foods from the very beginning, and then also what type of fundraising you've done as you built the company and what advice you have for people around fundraising. Sure. Well, we, um, in our, so our first funding, and I think oftentimes your, you know, first round of funding is, is in many ways, you're most important because it's what gets you off the ground, at least in our case, because we didn't have kind of a, you know, a personal, um, personal funding stockpile to pull from. Um, but our first round of funding came from um, a, in one of the first, you know, before impact investing was, um, was even a term, they were impact investing. So it was a, um, they were at the time called Bay Area Equity Fund. They're now called DBL investors. And they really are now leading and pioneering the, um, the impact investing movement. So they were, a, you know, a venture capital firm, but a venture capital firm that looked at, um, you know, that looked at companies who were providing and creating a sort of a social good in addition to creating a viable business model. And so in their case, they've looked a lot at you know, companies that are, um, that are benefiting communities that are creating good jobs. And, um, so we, you know, aligned very well with their kind of mission focus. Um, and then we've also had, we, in that early round, we also had, um, a, 
a, you know, a fairly large angel investor who, you know, was just a successful business person who cared a lot about healthy food and food access and who, you know, believed in us as entrepreneurs and, um, and invested in that, um, in that early round, you know, going forward from there, I think we have, um, we have had, a we've kind of built a really strong constellation of funders that include these kind of, you know, impact investor, venture capital type investors. Um, but we've also, because of our social mission and our, you know, certified B Corp status and, um, and our focus on um, delivering a, you know, a social impact, we have also been successful in raising funding from, um, from, you know, foundations who have invested in us as, um, not as a, you know, not as a grant fund, but as an actual equity investment, because, you know, foundations and nonprofit sources of funding are starting to see more and more that, you know, it's not just nonprofits that are doing, um, compelling, scalable, impact-driven work. Um, so we've, uh, you know, I think we've, we've sort of pioneered a very, um, interesting hybrid kind of financing model that involves both venture capital, um, you know, foundations as, um, as, you know, as equity investors, and then also, um, you know, increasingly more recently kind of family offices who we don't want to invest their, um, their, you know, family wealth into, um, you know, mission driven companies. So in terms of advice for people who are starting out, I would say, you know, many, many companies start with friends and family as their first investors. And I think that's a great way to go because, you give up less equity in the beginning um, and have kind of more of a runway to um, to build out and prove out your model. Um, but I do think, especially now, there are so many impact focused investors out there that um, you know that even the most kind of traditional venture capitalists are now talking about their investment focus being around you know what kind of an impact are you having on on society. Um, so I think that there's. There's, you know, there, there are a lot of different kinds of funders out there, but now I think more than ever is a great, um, a great funding environment for kind of mission-driven businesses. So one narrative that I think that sometimes goes around in the social impact space is that VCs, that you kind of want to avoid them. Um, and it sounds like in your case, you've actually found a mission-aligned VC and maybe multiple. And I'm curious around how did you ensure that they were values aligned enough that they weren't going to kind of like sell the soul of the company? Hmm, that's a great question. Well, I think, I think, you know, the most important thing to know about VCs is that they are as diverse as, you know, <laughs> as you can imagine. So it's, there's, I think, you know, saying anything kind of categorically about the the world of venture capital is, is, you know, doing a disservice to, um, to many of the people in that world. There certainly are, people in any different, you know, investment world that are going to be predatory and that are going to be, um, that are not going to be values aligned. Um, but we have found that, you know, we've been, I think we've been very careful about who we've chosen to work with in the VC world. And, um, you know, we've looked, I mean, we spend a lot of time or we do spend a lot of time with any new potential investor talking with other companies that they have invested in, um, you know, other leaders of other companies that they've invested in to, find out, you know, what kind of an investor are they? Are they company builders? Are they, or are they kind of, you know, let's, let's flip this in a short amount of time and sell the soul of the company type investors. And, and you find out pretty quickly by looking at what other companies they've invested in, kind of what their, what their focus is and what their, um, you know, how committed they are to the values that they say they are. You know, I think we also um, have been very, 
conscious and careful as we've brought new investors into the company to really make sure that they personally, you know, often the investment comes with a person sitting on the board or, you know, the sort of key point of contact. And, and you know, in, in all cases, the, the person who has made the investment in us, even if they're tied to a, a larger firm, they have, you know, in every case been somebody who's committed to, you know, in their own personal lives to healthy eating, nutrition, um, education, you know, bridging the access gap. So we look at kind of at the, the broader spectrum of kind of who is this person that's coming to the table and are they committed in other ways to our mission, you know, whether it be through involvement in education, involvement in, um, you know, food related advocacy work, um, you know, involvement in, in other kinds of activities, you know, through their, through their work and, and personal lives. So I do think it's important to, um, to, you know, make sure that you feel very comfortable with the actual person making the investment as well as with the, the sort of the firm or the, the VC entity. Hmm, that's great advice. Um, so it sounds like you're 12 years in, um, it's, you know, you've got all this traction you guys are doing incredible 3 million meals a week. Um, I'm curious, what are you struggling most with right now as a business leader? Um, that's a great question. Well, so I think, I think one of the things that we, that Kristen and I think a lot about now, and, you know, we are 12 years into running this, um, this company is, really making sure that we are building the team of leaders around us that are that are going to carry on the mission of the business not that we are going anywhere <laughs> we're not going anywhere but um you know i think for many many years we we were sort of swooping in to do a lot of the work um and you know as you get larger as a company you just can't do that anymore and you and it's both personally exhausting and um just not a, not a smart way to lead. And so, you know, I think the, the biggest thing that we are, um, that we've spent the last couple of years doing is really building out the leadership team with leaders who we, you know, really trust, um, to make great decisions, but also people who have experience building at least, you know, somewhat similar kinds of companies at the scale that we're operating at right now, because this is our first time doing this still, even though we've been doing it for 12 years, you know, we haven't, um, we haven't worked in other fresh food manufacturing companies or other, you know, 15, we haven't led other 1500 employee entities. And so bringing in people who, you know, have built the systems and processes necessary to, you know, continue to scale and grow this kind of a business is the, um, is probably the most important thing that we can do for, you know, for the long-term sustainability of the business. And, and really building on that, I'm curious, looking back over these last 12 years, what are the top maybe two to three lessons that you have that you would give as advice for other business leaders? Well, I mean, one is is kind of what I was just talking about, which is, you know, really building a great team, um, you know, a team that you that you really trust, that you enjoy working with, that is very committed to, you know, the heart and soul of the mission of what we're trying to do. Um, but also a team who's not just going to be a team of kind of yes people who are going to be like, oh, whatever you say, we're going to do, but people who will, you know, will question what we, um, you know, what we may think are, is the best way to go and people who have, you know, done these things before and who have experience. Um, so I think, you know, team at so many different levels, you know, both the leadership level, but also, you know, even at the entry level, building a strong team of people who are committed to the mission, you know, really willing to work hard to, to you know, take the company forward um, and who ideally bring in real expertise in, um, you know, in, in helping to build the 
systems and processes of the business. Um, you know, you can kind of not ever build the team too soon. <laughs> there are many times when, you know, we feel like we've brought the the key leader in a little bit too late and then they've got a lot of work to do to, um, to kind of get us to the next level. But um, so I think as an entrepreneur, just never, um, you know, never waiting too long to build the right team is, is one really important piece of advice. Um, and then, you know, I think the other one is, is really making sure, you know, one of the things that we've spent a lot of our, um, kind of efforts doing is making sure that our, that our values are, are sort of codified and reflected in everything that we do. Um, so that it's not just about us, you know, people asking us like, is this the right thing to do or is this the right thing to do? But actually sort of codifying in whether it's our nutrition standards, our food standards, our, how we work with our customers standards, how we, um, you know, bring insights from kids approach, you know, that all of these things are, are really codified into, you know, documents and systems and processes. And that's a very sort of like anti-entrepreneurial thing to do because in, you know, a lot of, a lot of times you just, you do need to be flexible and, and fly by the seat of your pants. But I think the more you can codify your, your sort of mission and values into your systems and processes, that at the end of the day is what's going to live on. Um, and that at the end of the day is, is also what's going to drive, you know, in our case, it's what drives the value of our company is, is the strength of our values and the strength of our brand. Um, and so I think that, you know, starting soon and, and, you know, always making sure that those things aren't just things that live up in your head, but they are written down and they're shared with the team and in, um, in a lot of meaningful ways um, is, is a really important kind of company building step that's hard to spend time on in the early days, but, um, but really pays off and is worthwhile. All right. So switching gears a little bit here, um, I want to talk about you. Um, and as I, I think I just heard that you have 1500 employees, is that accurate? That is, that's a pretty close number. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a story in my head and it might not be true, but that you have a lot on your plate. Um, and I am curious for you, what practices do you have in your life that help keep you grounded or deal with this pressure of being a business leader at the scale that you're at right now? Um, well, you know, I think, I think both Kristen and I, um, have, uh, you know, we, we prioritized taking care of ourselves in whatever way that means. So, you know, for me, that means getting a workout in every day. I'm a runner, I'm a triathlete. So, you know, making sure that I start my day with a, um, with a workout, because if I don't, I will, you know, I, I am not as effective <laughs> in many ways during the day. Um, so keeping that discipline is really, um, is really important. And then also protecting time with our families is really important. You know, we're both working parents and we both have kids at home and, um, you know, making sure that we have kind of dedicated time, whether it's, you know, uh, I mean, for me, it's like a very quick breakfast with the kids in the morning because they start school early and, um, and dedicated time to have dinner as a family together in the evening. Um, and, in really protecting weekends, you know, so it's kind of protecting some of that personal time to be with your family. It can, it also makes you feel, um, more effective as a leader when you're at work because you're, um, you know, you really know that you're spending the time with the, you know, in the place that, that needs you the most. And, um, so, you know, I think that's, those are a couple of important things. I think Kristen also does, I'm pretty sure she does daily meditation, which um, I haven't begun to do yet, but it's, you know, for some people, that's a really effective way to just kind of start the day really centered. Um, and, you know, I think, I think making sure that you're kind of 
attacking each day with knowing what are the most important things that need to get done that day um, and not feeling overwhelmed by just the magnitude of everything all the time. So one thing I was hoping that you could share with us is a life-changing moment that you've had on your journey. And that can be your professional journey or your personal journey. Just curious about a life-changing moment. Well, I mean, I think the most life-changing moment for me was um, having kids, you know, so it's probably the, the birth of my first child because that's the, that's the most life-changing <laughs> for sure, um, which happened, you know, one year into starting the company. And it was, and Kristen actually had her first child the, you know, the summer before we started the company. So we, you know, in those first couple of years of the company, we had small babies. Um, well, actually for the first five years of the company, we had small babies because we each had subsequent children. But, um, you know, I think that was a moment where, you know, you start, you, you really do realize, you know, you hear people say, oh, family's always most important. Um, but you start to realize that, you know, you actually have a human being who is entirely dependent on you <laughs> for survival and, um, and, but it also made me, you know, it was also life changing in that I knew that I, you know, it was very important to me to have a family and to, um, you know, to raise this baby well, but it was also really important to me that I figure out a way to do it in a way that also allowed me to, to build the company. Um, and I think, you know, I, I find that, you know, when I talk to other people who are kind of on the verge of, or, or have recently, um, started families, you know, it's people who love their work and people who love their jobs that go that you know continue to pursue their um, their career while raising a family and it's people who you know often don't feel like their job is that important that end up wanting to um, to you know spend time at home and you know and take a break from the career path and so you know I think it was it was life-changing for me and that it taught me that I both you know want to raise a family and be a mom, but I also really, you know, felt strongly that I wanted to figure out how to do that in a way that, that didn't take away from, um, from building the company. And so, you know, that ends up, you know, meaning creating a whole, a whole kind of constellation of support structure around our family. And I have, I'm lucky to have, um, you know, family close by and a husband who is the primary, you know, caregiver for our kids right now. And, you know, he cooks dinner most nights and, and I think, you know, figuring out ways to, um, to, you know, to live that, um, that balance and, and focus on, um, building the company at the same time as building the family is, um, you know, that was, I, I always kind of thought, I think before having kids that you had to make a choice between like, Oh, am I going to spend time with my family or am I going to be a business, you know, a, a career person? And, um, and I think, you know, that what was life changing for me was realizing that there or, you know, there are ways to do both that society doesn't always tell you is the right way to do it, but, um, <laughs> but it's possible. Mm, thank you. Um, I'm curious around if you have kind of any sort of mantras that you live by, or if there's a piece of advice that anyone's ever given you on your journey that has just always stuck with you as a fantastic piece of advice. Well, so one, so I'll, I'll tell you two, I think one is, um, you know, it was actually one of our early investors who gave us the advice, and this is related to the the sort of having a family and having a um, a career. You know, she she said two things. She said, you know, one, you're there's there's never going to be a great time to have kids, so have them when you're ready. <laughs> you know, there's don't don't sort of like wait for the moment because there's a moment when your body is going to be ready, and there's going to be a moment when your body is not ready anymore. So you know. And, um, and then she also said, you know what you are when it's often, it's kind of that thing, like when you want something to get done, give it to the busiest person, you know, um, 
it's kind of like if you, uh, she was like, well, if you're going to be starting a company and having a baby at the same time, you're not going to be sleeping anyway. So that's a great time to, <laughs> to get it all done. <laughs> um, so, you know, kind of a funny one. And then the other one, um, another person gave us the advice very early on, and this was kind of particular to the food industry, but I think it is actually relevant. She said, she said, wear comfortable shoes because you, ne- you never know when you are going to spend the whole day standing up in the kitchen, working and getting, you know, just getting the food out the door. Um, and the, the last thing that you need to worry about is having your feet hurt at the end of the day. You know, there are a lot of other things that you should be worrying about besides like, oh, that blister that you got because you wore those shoes that <laughs> are comfortable. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of a silly thing, but I think it's a good analog for, um, you know, like you, you need to take care of yourself and worry about the things that need to be worried about. Don't create new things for yourself to worry about. Um, and, you know, there's there there are ways that you can kind of live your life where you minimize that number of things that you need to be worrying about. Mm, I love that. Um, and so, final question here. I'm curious as you look forward, what is giving you hope for the future? Oh my gosh! I mean, I have so much hope for the future when I spend time in schools with kids and students, and you just see the, you know, the sort of unfettered <laughs> idealism still still alive in their eyes and. Um, and you know, when you see kids that are building healthy habits and, um, and they're aspiring to grow up to be, you know, things that are, you know, pursue careers that are going to contribute to the, making the world a better place. I just think, you know, looking at this next generation always gives me hope, whether it's my own kids or, you know, the, the students that we spend time with in schools through Revolution Foods. It's, um, I think we've got a, I think we've got a great generation coming to follow us. And I just think it, it, gives me that sort of hope, but also that great feeling of responsibility that we've got to, you know, set this world up to be as, um, as good of a place for them to live in as possible. A huge thanks this week goes out to Kirsten Toby and the whole team over at Revolution Foods. The World Changing Women podcast is brought to you by Conscious Company Media and is produced by StoryPop Media. If you like what you're hearing, we'd be so grateful if you tell a friend about the show and be sure to subscribe to get the latest episode. Thanks so much for listening. A Story Pop Media Production.